Well, let's, um, let's open up our Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Sticky pages, apparently. And beginning in verse 26. John 1, chapter 1, verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us, and that you would show us ourselves in your word, and that you would show us our Savior in your word. Let your word go forth and correct and rebuke and exhort and train in righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we continue this morning in our studies from the scriptures concerning this issue of the sealing of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And by way of review, just briefly, I have sought to establish from the scriptures that the sealing of the Spirit is something distinct from what the Holy Spirit does when he regenerates you and enables you to believe savingly on Jesus Christ and be born again. Now these two things may come very close together as they did in the case of Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10, or they may be separated by days or even weeks as in the case of the Samaritans whom Philip preached the gospel to, and they believed and were baptized in Acts 8, but the Spirit did not fall on them until the apostles came from Jerusalem and laid hands on them. Or they may be separated even by years, as apparently was the case with the disciples baptized with John's baptism in Acts chapter 19. Or, due to opposition, or ignorance, or neglect, or cherished sin, it may never happen For while the grace of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is an irresistible grace, we believe, the grace of the Holy Spirit in sealing us is like that grace of the Holy Spirit which he gives in sanctifying us, and it is very resistible. So we must cooperate. We must seek him as a general rule. Then I endeavor to find a middle way through two views which I believe are mistaken views on this issue which afflicted the modern church 
in the last 150 years or so. One is the error of Pentecostalism, which affirms the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event subsequent to conversion, which does add a great deal of grace and power to the life of the believer, and in that I believe they are correct. But I believe they err when they say that gift must be accompanied by the gift of tongues, and they further err in identifying the gift of tongues not as known human languages, as it was in Acts 1, and as I believe I can show from 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, but with a supposedly heavenly prayer language. If you do any research into the beginnings of the Pentecostal movement, which only came about at the beginning of the 20th century in 1904, 1905, 1906, when this phenomena, whatever it is, first erupted among them, they thought they were speaking in other human tongues. And somebody would get baptized in the Holy Spirit and do their thing, and they'd say, what language do you think you're speaking? And they I think I'm speaking Chinese. So they would immediately put them on a boat and send them to China to evangelize. And they get there, and they do their thing, and the Chinese look at them like they're crazy because it's not Chinese. And they, they, they suffered from this. Uh, they sent missionaries everywhere, and it became actually quite a problem because they didn't have enough money to bring them home when it was discovered that they weren't doing what they thought they were doing. And they only came up with this idea of a heavenly language that nobody can speak after failing at the earthly language thing. Now, on the other side are folks who just want to nip all this in the bud. They think it's all a bunch of error, and they do this simply by denying that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event subsequent to conversion, which may or may not happen. Instead, they say this baptism happens to everyone at conversion, and you just don't feel it necessarily. And so the Christian should not seek this second work of the Spirit, this sealing, because it's liable to result either in error or in great frustration and disillusionment in your Christian life. And they take as their text to justify their position, mostly 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. And that clearly is what happens when we're converted. Now, last week I argued that 1 Corinthians 12, 13 differs remarkably from the baptism of the Spirit described both by John the Baptist in John 1 and by the Lord himself in Acts 1. At conversion, the Holy Spirit baptizes us in the blood of Jesus, which forgives our sin and which engrafts us into the invisible church, into the spiritual and mystical body of Christ, just as Baptism in the visible church engrafts and incorporates us into the visible body of Christ. But Jesus says he will be the one doing the baptizing when it comes time for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he will baptize his followers with or in the Holy Spirit as John baptized with or in water. And in so doing, he will clothe them with power from on high to be his faithful witnesses around the world. So two different persons of the Godhead are baptizing with two different fluids or substances, each to achieve a different effect. Furthermore, I endeavor to show you that this view that the Spirit's baptism or sealing is not an event, or is, a, is not an event, um, I'm sorry, I'm don't know what I wrote here. Let me just try and read more carefully. Furthermore, I endeavored to show you that this view 
that the Spirit's baptism or sealing is not an event subsequent to conversion, there it is, is really rather a recent view. It, and probably arose more out of prejudice towards the errors of some who were advocating for this second blessing. So it's a, it's a relatively new thing to oppose this. There were people who agreed and disagreed, but there wasn't this firm opposition through the history until about the, the last, say, three quarters of the 19th century, about 1870 or so. And there are real errors associated with some of those who uh, claim this blessing. For instance, Wesley claimed that it resulted in a kind of perfection in this life. And he even, at the beginning, claimed you couldn't be a Christian at all unless you'd experienced it. He backed off on that later. The men of the Keswick Convention in Britain identified it with sanctification, and then they warned their followers that they must not struggle against sin and temptation, but rather they must let go and let God do it for them. But we showed that the Bible clearly teaches that sanctification is a lifelong process. It is a lifelong struggle of growth in the Spirit. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an event. Sanctification is not an event. It's a process. The baptism of the Holy Ghost can and does assist us in being sanctified. It helps us mightily. But it is not in and of itself sanctification. And then I endeavored to show you a little bit of the older writers, including many great and godly Reformed people, especially the Puritans, who had no difficulty with the idea of this being a second work of the Holy Spirit after conversion. For instance, Charles Hodge, who was the president of Princeton Seminary, writes in his commentary on the Ephesians in 1860, and he states that the sealing of the Spirit, quote, whatever it is, clearly comes after conversion. Now, it's hard to find a more orthodox Presbyterian theologian than Charles Hodge. Going back about 120 years from Charles Hodge, we have a man named Jonathan Edwards, which some of you might be familiar with from your high school history class, one of the, the greatest, most brilliant philosophers and, and theological minds that America has produced, and some have even called him the most brilliant philosopher since Plato and Aristotle walked the earth. He is widely acknowledged to be the finest mind ever produced in America, and that is acknowledged both by Christians and by secular scholars alike. At Yale University, they have the Jonathan Edwards Institute, and I was invited to participate in this effort to read through his works and then digitize them so that they would be available to the whole world on the internet. I never took advantage of that. They were gonna pay my way up there, and it was just too hard to get there from Sturgis, so I didn't do it, but just, and it would have been with all kinds of people, Christian and non-Christian alike, to go stay in the dorms at Yale and just read Jonathan Edwards for a couple of weeks in the summer. It would have been an amazing experience. His theology is part of the backbone of any Reformed minister's education. Now, I want you to listen to Jonathan Edwards describe his experience of the baptism or the sealing of the Spirit in his own words. Listen to what he says. As I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view 
that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and his meek and gentle condescension. The grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. And the person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent as an excellency great enough to swallow up all thoughts and all conceptions. And this continued as near as I can judge for about an hour. And it kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise or how to express, but emptied and annihilated. I wanted to lie in the dust and be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and a pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and a heavenly purity. George Whitfield may or may not be a name that you know. He was one of the great figures in the first great awakening along with Jonathan Edwards and the Wesleys. And that great awakening shook both Britain and colonial America. Whitfield preached in Edwards' church. They cooperated together in laboring within that mighty work of God which became known as the first great awakening. Listen to him relate his experience. After I had been groaning under an unspeakable pressure, both of body and mind, for more than 12 months, God was in 1735 pleased to set me free in the following manner. One day, perceiving an uncommon drought and a disagreeable clamminess in my mouth and using things to allay my thirst but in vain, it was suggested to me that when Jesus Christ cried out, I thirst, his sufferings were near an end. So I cast myself down on my bed and I cried out, I thirst, I thirst. Soon after this, I found and felt in myself that I was delivered from the burden that had so heavily oppressed me. The spirit of mourning was taken from me and I knew what it was truly to rejoice in God my Savior. And for some time, I could not avoid singing psalms wherever I was. But my joy gradually became more settled, and blessed be God has abode and increased in my soul, saving a few casual intermissions ever since. Thus were the days of my mourning ended, and after a long night of desertion and temptation, the star, which I had seen at a distance before, began to appear again, and the day star arose in my heart, and now did the Spirit of God take possession of my soul, and as I humbly hope, seal me unto the day of redemption. Most of you will probably not know the name of a Baptist preacher named Christmas Evans who labored during the revival in Wales in 1859. Listen to his story. On a day to be ever remembered by me, I was going from one village to another to preach, climbing up towards a certain high mountain. I considered it to be incumbent upon me to pray, however hard I felt in my heart, 
and however worldly the frame of my spirit was. Boy, I can identify with that. I should pray, but my heart is hard and my spirit is worldly and I don't feel like it and if I do it, I don't think I'll do it very well. Having begun in the name of Jesus, I soon felt, as it were, the fetters loosening and the old hardness of heart softening, and as I thought, mountains of frost and snow dissolving and melting within me. This engendered confidence in my soul, in the promise of the Holy Ghost. I felt my whole body, my whole mind relieved from some great bondage. Tears flowed copiously, and I was constrained to cry out for the gracious visits of God by restoring to my soul the joys of his salvation and to visit the churches in this town that were under my care, I embraced in all my supplications all the churches of the saints and nearly all the ministries in the principality by their names. This struggle lasted for three hours. It rose again and again, like one wave after another, or a high flowing tide driven by a strong wind, till my nature became faint by weeping and crying. And I resigned myself to Christ, body and soul, gifts and labors, every hour of every day that remained for me and all my cares I committed to Christ. The road was mountainous and lonely and I was wholly alone and suffered no interruption in my wrestling with God. And of course, before Evans and before Hodge and before Edwards and before Whitfield, there were the great English Puritans of the 1600s. I mentioned Thomas Goodwin last week who said that the experience of the sealing of the Spirit was second only to the experience of entering heaven in terms of the joy that he felt. And of course, the brilliant thinker and writer and preacher John Owen wrote about these things. But listen to the testimony of this saintly man, this saintly minister named John Flavel. He's one of the gentlest and most able theologians of Christian experience who ever wrote. I have seven volumes of his works on my shelf. I had to wait two years. I, ordered, I pre-ordered them. I had to wait two years for them to come. Very precious to me. Listen to what Flavel says, writing of himself in the third person. He was alone on a journey and determined to spend the day in self-examination. After some less material circumstances, he proceeds thus. In all that day's journey, he neither met, overtook, nor was overtaken by any. Thus, going on his way, his thoughts began to swell and to rise higher and higher, like the waters in Ezekiel's vision, till at last they became an overflowing flood. Such was the intention of his mind, such the ravishing tastes of heavenly joys, and such the full assurance of his interest therein, that he utterly lost sight and sense of this world, and all the concerns thereof, and for some hours knew no more where he was than if he had been in a deep sleep upon his bed. Arriving in great exhaustion at a certain spring, he sat down and washed, earnestly desiring if it were the pleasure of God 
that it might be his parting place from this world. Death had the most amiable face in his eye that he ever beheld except the face of Jesus Christ, which made it so. And he does not remember, though he believed himself dying, that he had once thought of his dear wife or children or any other earthly concernment. On reaching an inn, the same frame of spirit continued all night so that sleep departed from him. Still, still the joy of the Lord overflowed him and he seemed to be an inhabitant of another world. But within a few hours, he was sensible of the ebbing of the tide and before night, though there was a heavenly serenity and a sweet peace upon his spirit which continued long with him, yet the transports of joy were over and the fine edge of his delight was blunted. He, for many years after that, called that day one of the days of heaven and professed that he understood more of the life of heaven by it than by all the books he had ever read or discourses he had ever heard about it. And of course, John Wesley famously relates his experience in a place called Aldersgate Street where he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed and I became certain of my belonging to Christ and being loved by Christ. And after that, John Wesley's preaching was powerfully used for the conversion of hundreds of thousands, both in Great Britain and in America. Now, I want you to notice something. In that list, we have Presbyterians like Flavel and Hodge. We have Baptists like Christmas Evans. We have Congregationalists like Jonathan Edwards. We have Whitfield, who was an Anglican, and Wesley, who was an Arminian Methodist. And yet all embraced and experienced this sealing of the Spirit subsequent to conversion. Most of them were faithful ministers of the gospel who had labored many years in the Lord's service before this blessing came upon them. And I want you to notice another thing that ties into what we discussed last week. At the heart of this experience is what Paul describes in Romans 5.5 and Romans 8.14-17. It is an overwhelming experience of the love of God for his child and a deep sense of the privilege of adoption. We cry, Abba, Father, says Paul in Romans. And the word to cry out here referred originally to the croaking of a raven. It had this sense of something deep and primal, central to the depths of your being, as one might cry out in fear or in pain when surprised. To have this experience and from your very depth to cry with all of your being and to burst forth with a cry that says, Abba, Father as the love of God is poured into your being so that your mortal frame begins to buckle under the gushing. D.L. Moody, who I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, said that when he experienced this, he had, after a period of time, to beg God to stop because he felt like it would kill him if it went on any longer. John, or Flavel, Flavel thought that he would die that day and he longed for it. The power of God invades your being and threatens to bury you under a torrent of his love. 
The sealing of the Spirit is not something you can get without knowing it, without being aware of it. It is an experience which overwhelms you and leaves you different than you were before. Now, I have mentioned before that this sealing will produce visible effects, as it did for the Lord Jesus himself. What might those be? Just briefly, I'm going to mention some. One that pops up over and over again is a sense of fear, of godly fear. When the Lord comes in power, often the first response is fear. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 43, it says that after the preaching of Peter at Pentecost and the conversion of about 3,000 souls, that, quote, great fear came upon every soul. When Ananias and Sapphira pulled their stunt with the money and God struck them both dead, great fear came upon the people. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31 describes a church which walked in the fear of the Lord as well as the comfort of the Spirit. And this fear arises because the power of God is present and you realize that he is not to be trifled with. Often convictions of sin are attached to it. Jonathan Edwards actually mentions this in a a book that he wrote or a treatise that he wrote um, called Marks of the Work of the True Spirit. He experienced this revival and of course there were excesses and things like that and there was of course also criticism. Other ministers criticized it and they said this is either people just getting wound up and too excited or this is the work of the devil and Edwards says well we have to consider that it might be so. So let's sit down and figure out what are the marks of the work of the Spirit of God and one of them he says is fear and listen to what he writes. And this is, I hear in this the echoes of his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If we should suppose that a person saw himself hanging over a great pit full of fierce and glowing flames by a thread that he knew to be very weak and not sufficient to bear his weight, and he knew that multitudes had been in such circumstances before and that most of them had fallen and perished and he saw nothing within reach that he could take hold of to save him, what distress would he be in? How ready to think that now the thread was breaking, that now this minute he should be swallowed up in those dreadful flames. And would not he be ready to cry out in such circumstances? How much more those who see themselves in this manner hanging over an infinitely more dreadful pit or held over it in the hand of God, who at the same time they see to be exceedingly provoked. No wonder that the wrath of God, when manifested but a little to the soul, overbears human strength. So it may at first shake your assurance of salvation. It may cause you to say, am I, am I saved or not? And if I'm not, man, the consequences of that are bad and they're terrifying. Edwards also notes that joy will also occur. Joy, which is so powerful that it actually saps the physical strength. It says in 1 Kings 10.5 that when the queen of Sheba came to see Solomon, 
and she was kind of skeptical, and she came, and she beheld his wisdom, and she beheld his splendor, and she beheld the splendor of his servants, and she swooned because there was no more spirit in her. She was overawed at the, at the works of Solomon and the glory of Solomon. When angels appear, men fall down as though dead. When the Lord comes in the sealing of the Spirit, one greater than Solomon has arrived. One greater than the angels has arrived. And, pe and people find their knees buckling under them as the glory of God fills the room. It might also result in experiences of spiritual ecstasy as Flavel related. It will result in a firm resistance to Satan's works and to the vanity of the world. The worldly follies which formerly obsess a person suddenly become uninteresting. It will also result in a passionate interest in prayer and in worship and in reading the scriptures and in gathering together with the people of God. In days of darkness and deadness, you hold prayer meetings and few show up. When the Spirit comes, you hold prayer meetings. You don't have to hold them. People just show up and create them spontaneously. Another sure sign is love. Love for fellow believers in particular. 1 John chapter 4 makes a clear connection between the possession of the Spirit and a real love for God and a real love for the brethren which John says is actually proof that you know God. Another mark, another visible uh, effect when the Spirit comes down upon us is humility. We are no longer obsessed with self, with self-love and self-desire and getting our own way. Instead, there is a self-shyness and a self-emptiness and a self-renunciation. There is a true poverty of spirit. You don't march into the church and complain about all the things you don't like and say, what have you done for me lately? I'm out of here. Bye. No, no, no. You march into the church and you fall on your face before God and say, what have I done for you lately, Lord? I am your unworthy servant. We can also add to this a discovery and a passion to use the spiritual gifts which the Holy Spirit gives each person who is truly saved so that they might play their role in the building up of the body of Christ. And so all of a sudden, you no longer have a situation in which 20% of the people drive 90% of the activity of the church while 80% of the people loaf and consume and criticize. Instead, in their great reverence and fear, they will realize that to do so is to be in danger of putting oneself in the position of the wicked, lazy servant who buried his talent in the parable of Jesus and whom the master cast into outer darkness where there was weeping and there was gnashing of teeth. You'd say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. Listen again to Jonathan Edwards. The spirit that is at work takes off persons' minds from the vanities of the world and engages them in a deep concern about eternal happiness 
and puts them upon earnestly seeking their salvation and convinces them of the dreadfulness of sin and of their own guilty and miserable state as they are by nature. It awakens men's consciences and makes them sensible of the dreadfulness of God's anger and causes them a great desire and earnest care and endeavor to obtain his favor. It puts upon them a more diligent improvement of the means of grace which God has appointed, accompanied with a greater regard for the word of God, a desire of hearing it and reading it and of being more conversant with it than they used to be. And it is notoriously manifest that when the spirit that is at work in general operates as a spirit of truth, making persons more sensible of what is really true in these things, that concern for their eternal salvation, as they must die, and that life is very short and uncertain, and that there is a great sin-hating God of whom they are, to whom they are accountable and who will fix them in an eternal state in another world. And they stand in great need of a Savior. And it makes them more sensible of the value of Jesus who was crucified and their need of him. And that it puts them upon earnestly seeking an interest in him. What man or woman of God can look upon this subject and not long for this to happen to you? Do you now cry out in your soul for an experience like this? For an experience like what Flavel describes? People take drugs and destroy themselves in order to achieve that state of ecstasy which God gives to his people as a health-causing gift. I, I don't think it's, it's at all unreasonable to presume that part of the reason in Acts chapter 2 where they thought they were drunk was that they were in such a state of ecstasy that you could just look at their face and go, they're not altogether engaged with their surroundings because the Spirit of God was upon them. The glory of God was upon them. Heaven was real. Jesus was close. Power was at hand. Eternity touched the world. And that which we will experience in heaven as constant rapture broke through to the earth in a small way for a little while. Don't you want that? Don't you want to know what it's like to have the same kind of experience that Edward had or Moody had? Don't you want to drink at the, the, the fountain of God's love? Do you want power? Real spiritual power? Do you long to see our churches full and our land rescued from the terrible thrall of evil that has come upon it? How shall we acquire this great blessing if we want it? Well, there are many things that I might say, and God willing, I will say them next week. But let me start here. You must humbly ask for it. And you must not set any conditions on how it is to be received. You do not decide when. You do not decide how. You do not dictate the terms of what must happen or what must not happen. 
You must lay yourself open before the Lord Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, please baptize me with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Seal me with your spirit and whatever you want to do, I do not resist you. I surrender all. Now I want to close with a wonderful passage from a missionary to India in the 19th century. His name was George Bowen. He was a Methodist. And he went to India as a missionary and he was like, I'm living in this nice house and the people that I'm trying to lead to Christ, these poor Hindus in the marketplace and whatever, are almost starving to death. I can't in good conscience live like that. So I'm going to renounce everything. I'm going to dress like them. I'm going to live with them. I'm going to live like them. And I'm just, at one point in time, he just dwelled in a railway station. Listen to what he had to say about this baptism of the Holy Ghost. You, entertaining a certain conception of the Spirit, ask for the Spirit and suppose that his influences will all correspond with the the conception that you have formed. You expect him, for instance, to be to you a spirit of consolation and to compass you about with ambrosial airs of paradise. You understand that he is to lift you into a super mundane ethereal sphere where poets and visions of islands of the blessed shall come flashing upon you upon the right hand and upon the left. But the spirit is truth and he must come in his true character or not at all. You have solicited his ministrations and they are not withheld. But how surprised you are when he takes you by the hand to prepare you for a rapturous ascent into the Empyrean to find that he has taken you by the hand for the purpose of conducting you down into some deep, dark, dungeon-like chambers of imagery. In vain you shudder and draw back only to discover thereby what an iron grasp he has. He bids you to look upon those hideous images and to observe how they show forth the great features of your past life. One abominable statue is named selfishness and its lofty pedestal is completely carved with inscriptions of dates. You look at those dates, your guide constrains you to and you are appalled to find that what you regarded as the most beautiful and consecrated hours of your past life are there, even there. There is a repulsive image called covetousness, and you say boldly, surely I am that sure I am that no date of mine is inscribed there. Alas, there are many, and some that you thought golden that connected you with heaven. Anger, wrath, malice. See how the odious monsters seem to wink at you from their seats as at a well-known comrade. How the picture of your past life is made ugly on their pedestals. You look unbelief in the face and frowning, tell him that you know him not. Whatever your faults, you have never been an unbeliever. And the spirit constrains you to observe that unbelief claims and justly claims the whole of your past life a profound humiliation and a piercing sorrow possesses your heart. At least, you say, standing opposite the image of falsehood, I am no liar. 
I hate all falsehood with a perfect hatred. And the Spirit of God points you to the fatal evidence. And you examine the dates and see that some of them refer even to your seasons of prayer. At length, altogether humbled and dispirited and conscience-stricken, you acknowledge that here in these damp subterranean galleries and in the midst of these abominable images is your true home. You remember with shame the ideas with which you had greeted the Spirit, and you fall at his feet confessing all your folly. There does he raise you and lead you into the open air beneath the blessed canopy of heaven. And you find a chariot in which you may, unforbidden, take your place beside the Spirit and visit the places of joy that are above the earth. So it might be like Scrooge and the ghosts of Christmas past when he comes as he takes you to the places in your life that you haven't told the truth to yourself or anyone else about. And he shows you, you are not what you think you are. And he slays you. And then he raises you up again after he's humbled you and fills you with joy. He gets to do it however he wants to do it or he won't do it at all. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer.